the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Judges, Samson and his wife teach us a great deal about how to have a bad marriage. We'll pick it up in Judges chapter 14, verse 18. Once again, that's Judges chapter 14, verse 18. Judges chapter 14. Judges chapter 14. And so, verse 18, the men of the city said unto him on the seventh day before the sun went down. So right at the end, the very end of when they could tell him. And they solved the riddle by saying, what is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And Samson replied to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you had not found out my riddle. Ah, Obviously, not something you would want to say in reference to your wife. Um, I highly recommend not following Samson's example here, even when you feel betrayed by your spouse. But I don't think he's making a direct reference to his spouse. Heifers were not normally used for plowing. So this, is a sta- this statement is an accusation that they did not play fair. You did something that shouldn't have been done. You don't use a heifer for plowing. A heifer is used for other purposes. So he's saying, if you had not played unfairly, then you would not have found out my riddle. And so Samson, you could tell by his response that he feels betrayed, not just by his wife here, but by all the Philistines. And he decides, you know what? Two can play at this game. I'm going to go get the nice suits that I owe to all of you from some rich Philistines who are still wearing them. Look at verse 19. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, Samson, and he, Samson, went down to Ashkelon, uh, that's about 20 miles from Timnath, and he slew 30 men of them, and he took their spoil, and he gave the change of garments unto them which expounded the riddle, and his anger was kindled, and he went up to his father's house. He left his wife, but Samson's wife was given to his companion whom he had used as his friend." Now, this is about 70 times ways messed up, all right? This is so messed up, I don't even know where to begin. So let's start at the beginning in verse 19 where it says, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Why would God come upon him in supernatural power when Samson's motivation here is not spiritual, but it's personal hurt and anger and a desire for retribution? Revenge, personal revenge. 
Well, we already know the answer. The answer is given up here in verse 4. The reason, the same reason that God allowed him to marry this Philistine girl. It says, it was of the Lord because he sought an occasion against the Philistines. God wanted conflict between Israel and the Philistines, and this was the spark that will start the fire. And so he empowers Samson, allows Samson to go through with this. Now, Samson goes down to Ashkelon. Ashkelon is one of the five royal cities of the Philistines, over 20 miles from Timnath. I mean, you've got to be pretty angry to go stomping down there to go get these suits. However, there is a method to his anger. Because it's a royal city, this is where the wealthiest Philistines would live. And so he goes into this packed city, packed full of Philistines, kills 30 men of them, takes their spoil, literally what they were wearing, takes the clothes right off of them, and I don't think he probably dry cleaned them before returning them. And then he throws the clothes at their feet, you know, gave the change of garments unto them which expounded the riddle. Here you go. Hope you like them. Now, none of this from an individual perspective of what is right and what is wrong is good. From God's perspective, he's starting a conflict up with the Philistines and the Israelis. But from a personal perspective, none of the actions that Samson is taking are right, biblical, or good. And yet, how does Samson respond to the concept that God supernaturally empowered him to do this? Despite knowing what his calling is. What's his calling? What was the thing that God had told his parents? We see here back in Judges chapter 13, what has God told to Manoah's wife? It says here in verse 5 of chapter 13, For lo, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come in his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. He knows. Mom, why is it I can't get a haircut again? Because God is a special call upon your life, Samson. God is going to use you to begin to deliver us from our enemies, from the Philistines, those who've oppressed us. We have cried out to God for mercy, not because we deserve it, but because things are really bad. And, and God is answering us, and you're his answer. Samson knows this. And yet again, despite knowing his calling, Samson does not take note of God's supernatural empowerment to fight the Philistines. After all is said and done, what is the pervading thought in his mind after he gives him these garments? It's anger. And his anger was kindled, and he went up to his father's house. He left his wife, abandoned his marriage, after just one week of it. What should have been one of the happiest times in both of these people's lives was a tragedy. To console his daughter, who would have been considered cursed as an abandoned wife, her father has her married to one of those 30 guys that had been one of Samson's best, best men. Now, before we move into all of this decision-making by Samson that is poor as an individual, we do want to take a look briefly here at this failed marriage. 
Because if you want a lesson on how to not do a marriage, look at Samson and this young lady. Number one, he courts and he marries an unbeliever. The Bible is clear. In the Old Testament, it said to them, you will not marry any one of the Canaanites. And the Philistines were part of that group. They were part of the group that was supposed to be driven out, not to be made alliances with, not to be allowed to remain in the land, and not to be, certainly not to be intermarried with. God was very clear specifically, don't worship their gods, don't interact with them, and do not intermarry with them. We have the same commandment in the New Testament about not being unequally yoked. In 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, there's lots of ways that that could apply, but certainly marriage is one of those ways. When you marry someone, you are yoking in with them. You are saying, we're going to take our two lives that were going separate and unique directions, and now we're going to put them together, and we're going to, because God, when we make that commitment to put them together, we make our vows, he's going to supernaturally glue us together, and therefore our lives will never go in separate directions. They will always be going in the same direction. That is God's intent for us. Like I can never come to my wife and say, well, God's called me to go this direction, and she can say, well, God's called me to go this direction. God would never call us to do that. He makes us one. Every plan, even if it doesn't mean we were attached at the hip together, but the idea is that every plan of God will be us together moving forward. How do you do that with someone who doesn't share your value system? How do you do that with someone who, who, doesn't, who doesn't long for the same things you long for? Who doesn't love the same things you love? It's impossible when it comes to the relationship with the Lord. You know, when Beverly and I got married, we dated for five years. And we, we had been friends before that for a couple of years. So we knew each other pretty well. But one of the things we discovered as we began to live together as a married couple is that we had nothing in common. Literally, zero in common. Everything I liked to do, she had no interest in. Everything she liked to do, I hated, including peanut butter. But the one thing we had in common was our love for the Lord and our sense of the direction that he had put our lives together to go. And so some of those early stages were interesting as we were navigating through the process of how do we do life outside of the dating process? How do we date each other every minute of every day when we don't like doing the same things together? You know, well, we had the Lord the whole time. And so that kept us moving in the right direction and learning to love each other, learning to serve each other, learning to do things we ne didn't naturally like, but to appreciate it because we were with the person we loved. I still don't like peanut butter, but I, I, I like doing pretty much anything with my wife. You know, there are lots of things that she didn't like at all that I did. And, and she'll enjoy things that I enjoy doing now. Now, that doesn't mean every little thing we take great enjoyment from, you know. But the idea is, is that your enjoyment comes from being with the person, not in what you're doing. Of dying to self and not making it just about you and what you want. That's very difficult to do if you don't even have the Lord moving you in the same direction. So, number one, he marries, courts and marries an unbeliever. That's a no-no. 
a direct disobedience to Scripture. Don't court an unbeliever. If you're a Christian, you have no business courting an unbeliever. You will end up with heartache. Number two, Samson puts her at risk by placing his own desires above how it might affect his wife. He comes out with this whole idea of, I'm going to make some money off this whole thing. I'm not going to lose out. I'm going to make some money. I'm going to put us in a good position. But he puts his wife in a horrible position. He doesn't even consider how his decision is going to affect her. One of the things we tell people in their premarital counseling, or that we have to correct, most common things we have to correct in marital counseling, is when an individual in a married situation begins to act like an individual still. A single, the married person is still acting like a single person. When they decide to make large monetary purchases, or sometimes even multiple small monetary purchases, when they decide to make executive decisions for the family without talking to your spouse, without working together on those things, you are going to get in a fight if you do that. <laughs> That's just how it's going to end up. In a marriage, you work together, you know? You work together. Me and Beverly, we, we have a, a budget. Now, Beverly is not a budget person. Beverly is a, a, a free-flying individual. She loves to just, you know, go with the flow. I am someone that I like everything scheduled. I like everything planned. So, the, you know, the joy of putting two of us together is that we balance each other out. We complement each other really well, unless we're selfish about it. If I demand my way or she demands her way, then guess what? We aren't considerate towards each other. And as a result, we put each other in positions that place us at risk. Samson placed her at risk by putting his own desires above how it might affect his wife. I remember I had a gentleman that I knew who all of a sudden he showed up Sunday morning in a convertible. And I knew they were not in a good financial position. I knew he wasn't working. And so he said, hey, check out my new car. And my first question was, did your wife sign off on this? Did you guys decide to do this together? He said, no, I just had to get it. And I said, what in the world were you thinking? I had already had them in for marriage counseling, and I knew that this was going to be another problem, a lifelong list of impulse, selfish decisions where a married person was acting like he was still single. You don't get to do that when you decide to marry someone. You know what 1 Corinthians 7 says? It says that your body doesn't belong to you anymore, so you don't get to do with it what you want. Your body now needs the permission of your spouse to do whatever you want now because you gave it to them on the day you made your vows. I don't get to do what I want with myself. I need my wife's permission to do that, and it works the same way for her. We're in this together. We're a team. So I don't get to still act like a single person when I'm married. See, the problem is, is that certain people like Samson want the benefits of marriage without the commitment of marriage. Don't do that in your marriage. Number three, she tries to fix the problem herself without confiding in her husband. And she ends up siding with her people over her husband. That's three and four, I guess you could say. She doesn't confide in him. Listen, wives, I know you, you may be worried about how your husband may respond if you talk to them about a problem that's going on or a fear you have or a worry you have. But 
This is the person that God has put into your life to be your helper as well, to help lead you through that, to dwell with you with understanding. You say, my husband's not understanding. Yes, but you're not going to fix it by leaning on your own understanding and taking matters into your own hands. That will never fix it. 1 Peter chapter 3 has clear instructions for if you have a husband, it doesn't say he's not a believer, it says a husband who won't obey the word of God. If you have a husband who's just not being obedient to the Lord, it has clear instructions about how you're supposed to handle that. And it's not by taking matters into your own hands. And your example (laughs) to follow is Sarah, who had to listen to a husband who was lying about their marital status because he thought that would keep her safe, but in reality ended up her in, in, in in a harem twice. So, This is not the way to handle things if you're a husband, of course, but that's not the way to fix the problem if you're a wife. Tell your husband, say, listen, this is really important to me and I need your help. I have a fear, I have a worry, I have a problem and I need to talk to you about it. Can we do that, please? And then pray. Pray that God moves in the heart of your husband. Trust me, he can do a far better job than you can with your husband. Now she sided with her people over her husband. Listen, I don't care what culture you come from. I realize American culture is a lot looser, you know, and, and other cultures are much more closely tied with their, their immediate family. But when you get married, you leave your father and your mother and you cleave to your spouse. The, your number one loyalty is to your spouse always. It's not to your kids, and it's not to anyone that came before, not to a cousin or a a brother or a sister, to parents, anything. She placed her parents and her people over her husband, and that will always end badly. A spouse knows when they're not the priority, especially a wife, but they both know. I know of a, a couple that every time the mother called, the mother in law called, all she did was insult the husband to the wife. And the husband knew this. He could hear it. He could hear the tone of the conversation. And she would just listen to it. Listen, my parents would never do this. But if I had parents that were insulting my wife, my first thing to say to them is say, if you insult my wife again, I'm hanging up. And if you continue to insult my wife in the future, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. Period. Because you're not going to do that. I'm going to let you know that she is valued above everything else in my life right now except the Lord. And that's how it's supposed to be. And when you don't have that proper order, you're going to have problems in your marriage. Number five, Samson shows himself as untrustworthy of being confided in because he puts his parents above his wife. He says to them, I haven't even told my parents. Why would I tell you? How do you think that made her feel? I see wives all the time who they always feel like they're playing second fiddle to their husband's parents or their husband's siblings, that there's always a loyalty. The the husband's always there for the parents. He's always there for the siblings, but he's never there for his hurting wife. He's never there for the needs of his own family. That is going to create problems. Samson showed clearly where his loyalty was and it was in the wrong place. Husbands, your first priority is your wife. You know, the Bible says that we're to love our wives like Christ loved the church. 
And Jesus could have stayed in heaven with his heavenly father, who he had a wonderful relationship with. But he left that place to lay down his life for his bride. That's what he did. And so maybe you enjoy being with your family more than you enjoy being with your wife. Tough. You shouldn't have gotten married then. You should have hung out with your family. You don't get to have the benefits of marriage without the commitment of being the one who dies for your spouse, for your wife, for your bride. Number six, she tries to get him to change by nagging. There's scriptures that talk about what a nagging wife is like, and I won't quote them because you already know them. Even if your husband gives in, you are losing his heart. So even if you get what you want, you're not really getting what you need or what you really want. You want to be loved. You want to be valued. Now, if your husband's not listening to that, nagging will not change that. I've never met a husband who said, you know what? I don't think I'm appropriately loving my wife. I can tell because she's nagging me so much. I've just never seen a husband respond that way. When we do marital counseling or premarital counseling, Beverly will often bring this up. She goes, I have never changed Will's mind or his heart by getting on his case about something. She said, I have been able to do that, though, by serving him, by loving him, by ministering to him, even when he's not ministering to me. So wives, don't nag your husbands to try to get them to change. Pray, serve them, love them. Do what 1 Peter 3 says. Now, number seven, Samson gives in to her nagging instead of trying to understand where he's failed. He just wanted her to get off his case. Instead of going, you know, you're really bugged by this. You know, where have I blown it? One of the things that I read in a marriage book for husbands is it said, husbands, your wife is a mirror for you to see where you are failing and where you are succeeding. And you know, when I see my wife upset, when I see that she is all out of sorts, I can say nine out of 10 times, I can probably pinpoint an area where I have failed in some way. Now, I say nine out of 10 times because there's times when we've talked about it and Beverly says, well, this is just me. It has nothing to do with you. I need to repent. I need to deal with some things. It's just me. But a lot of times I had a part to play in that. And, and Samson, he never looked internally. He never looked at himself. You know, when I see my marriage is not where it, it, I like it to be, not where I hope it will be or not where I want it to be, and our relationship isn't the way it's supposed to be, the first thing I do is I don't go to the Lord and go, God, can you please fix her? I say, Lord, reveal to me where I am not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Because like I said, nine times out of 10, the Lord has something to say to me. Nine times out of 10, the Lord goes, well, I, I'm glad you asked because I want to talk to you about this. Giving into the nagging is not solving the problem. It's only making you feel like you don't have to deal with it anymore. And then number eight, Samson leaves his wife when he realizes she's betrayed him. If you're not married today and you want to get married, you need to understand something. You're going to be betrayed because you're marrying a sinner. It's going to happen. It may not happen to this degree. It may happen to a greater degree. But you will be betrayed. You're marrying a sinner. 
you will betray your spouse because you're a sinner. And even though betrayal hurts, the answer is never to leave. Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He is our groom. We are his bride. And that's his word to us. I will not let you go. I will not let you down. I will never leave thee. I will never forsake thee. There are times and situations where it is okay to leave your marriage when you are in physical danger. There are situations where you would need to leave, where it's unsafe. But a betrayal is not one of those reasons that we find in Scripture. The Bible says that forgiveness is a big part of marriage. And if you don't learn to forgive your spouse, if you don't go into marriage understanding that it's going to be a big part of your marriage, you're going to find yourself in a heap of trouble. Now, Samson's wife may have gotten what she wanted through manipulation, but she lost her husband's heart. Samson reached for something forbidden and ended up not getting what he wanted. And this is what will always happen when you and I violate God's word as it concerns marriage. Don't treat your marriage that way. Do things God's way, whether you're currently single or whether you're married, because your way will always lose out on something vital, even if you get something you want. Always. Always. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.